From PQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. My name is Paul Oster, and I'm going to be reading some passages from Winter Journal, an autobiographical work published in 2012. The dancers saved you. They are the ones who brought you back to life that evening in December 1978, who made it possible for you to experience the scalding, epiphanic moment of clarity that pushed you through a crack in the universe and allowed you to begin again. Bodies in motion, bodies in space, bodies leaping and twisting through empty, unimpeded air. Eight dancers in a high school gym in Manhattan, four men and four women, all of them young, eight dancers in their early 20s, and you sitting in the bleachers with a dozen or so acquaintances of the choreographers to watch an open rehearsal of her new piece. You had been invited by David Reed, a painter you met on the student ship that took you to Europe in 1965, now your oldest friend in New York, who had asked you to come because he was romantically involved with the choreographer, Nina W., a woman you did not know well and whose affair with David did not last long. But if you are not distorting the facts, you believe she had started out as a dancer in Merce Cunningham's troupe, and now that she had turned her energies to choreography, her work bore some resemblance to Cunningham's muscular, spontaneous, unpredictable. It was the darkest moment of your life. You were 31 years old. Your first marriage had just cracked apart. You had an 18-month-old son and no regular job, no money to speak of, grinding out your meager, inadequate living as a freelance translator, author of three small books of poetry with at most 100 readers in the world, padding your pittance of an income by writing critical pieces for Harper's, the New York Review of Books, and other magazines. And apart from a pseudonymous detective novel you had written the previous summer in an effort to generate some cash, which still had no publisher, your work had staggered to a halt. You were stuck and confused. You had not written a poem in more than a year. And you were slowly coming to the realization that you would never be able to write again. Such was the spot you were in that winter evening more than 32 years ago when you walked into the high school gym to watch the open rehearsal of Nina W.'s work in progress. You knew nothing about dance, still know nothing about dance, but you have always responded to it with a soaring inner happiness whenever you see it done well. And as you took your seat next to David, you had no idea what to expect, since at that point Nina W.'s work was unknown to you. She stood on the gym floor and explained to the tiny audience that the rehearsal would be divided into two alternating parts, demonstrations of the principal movements of the piece by the dancers and verbal commentary from her. Then she stepped aside, and the dancers began to move around the floor. The first thing that struck you was that there was no musical accompaniment. The possibility had never occurred to you dancing to silence rather than to music, for music had always seemed essential to dance, inseparable from dance, not only because it sets the rhythm and speed of the performance, but because it establishes an emotional tone for the spectator, giving a narrative coherence of what would otherwise be entirely abstract. But in this case, the dancers' bodies were responsible for establishing the rhythm and tone of the piece. And once you began to settle into it, you found the absence of music wholly invigorating. 
since the dancers were hearing the music in their heads, the rhythms in their heads, hearing what could not be heard, and because these eight young people were good dancers, in fact, excellent dancers, it wasn't long before you began to hear those rhythms in your head as well. No sounds then, except the sounds of bare feet thumping against the wooden floor of the gym. You can't remember the details of their movements, but in your mind you see jumping and spinning, falling and sliding, arms waving and arms dropping to the floor, legs kicking out and running forward, bodies touching and then not touching, and you are impressed by the grace and athleticism of the dancers. The mere sight of their bodies in motion seemed to be carrying you to some unexplored place within yourself, and little by little you felt something lift inside you, felt joy rising through your body and up into your head, a physical joy that was also of the mind, a mounting joy that spread and continued to spread through every part of you. Then, after six or seven minutes, the dancers stopped. Nina W. stepped forward to explain to the audience what they had just witnessed. And the more she talked, the more earnestly and passionately she tried to articulate the movements and patterns of the dance, the less you understood what she was saying. It wasn't because she was using technical terms that were unfamiliar to you. It was the more fundamental fact that her words were utterly useless, inadequate to the task of describing the wordless performance you had just seen, for no words could convey the fullness and brute physicality of what the dancers had done. Then she stepped aside and the dancers began to move again, immediately filling you with the same joy you had felt before they'd stopped. Five or six minutes later, they stopped again, and once more Nita W. came forward to speak, again failing to capture a hundredth part of the beauty you had just seen. And back and forth it went for the next hour, the dancers taking turns with the choreographer, bodies in motion followed by words, beauty followed by meaningless noise, joy followed by boredom. And at a certain point, something began to open up inside you. You found yourself falling through the rift between world and word, the chasm that divides human life from our capacity to understand or express the truth of human life. And for reasons that still confound you, this sudden fall through the empty, unbounded air filled you with a sensation of freedom and happiness. And by the time the performance was over, you were no longer blocked no longer burdened by the doubts that had been weighing down on you for the past year. You returned to your house in Dutchess County, to the downstairs workroom where you had been sleeping since the end of your marriage, and the next day you began to write. For three weeks you worked on a text of no definable genre, neither a poem nor a prose narrative, attempting to describe what you had seen and felt as you'd watched the dancers dance, and the choreographer talk in that high school gym in Manhattan, writing many pages to begin with and then boiling them down to eight pages, the first work of your second incarnation as a writer, the bridge to everything you have written in the years since then. And you remember finishing during a snowstorm late one Saturday night, two o'clock in the morning, the only person awake in the silent house. And the terrible thing about that night, the thing that continues to haunt you is that just as you were finishing your piece, which you eventually called White Spaces, your father was dying in the arms of his girlfriend. The ghoulish trigonometry of fate. Just as you were coming back to life, your father's life was coming to an end.
To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.